On the Healthy Human Revolution podcast, Dr. Lori Marbus interviews nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests whose informative and inspiring stories will empower you with the knowledge to transform your life and health. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and today I'm so honored to welcome Donnie Campbell. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on. Yo, thank you for joining us from the Highlands of Scotland. And you are an ultra distance marathoner who just completed an impressive feat <laughs> running the Monroes of Scotland. And there was 282. And so a Monroe would be a mountain equivalent here in the US, correct? Am I right in my translation? <laughs> yeah, so basically, we don't have massive hills in Scotland. The highest hill is Ben Nevis, which is uh, basically 1,300 meters and a bit. Uh, so basically, a Monroe is classified as a top over 3,000 feet or 914 meters um, high. So there's 282 of them in Scotland. Uh, so yeah, I ran all of them in August. Um, they're all spread out all over Scotland. So you've got Ben Hope, which is way up north near Cape Wrath, Johnny Goat's Hill and Wit. And then you've got Most Southerly, which is Ben Lomond, which is kind of near like Glasgow area, Loch Lomond side. So. Excellent. And so you did all that in 31 days, which was, <laughs> all right, so I, I have the, the stats here and you tell me, if, <laughs> I, I, I can't even imagine what this is like. So you did that in 31 days. The previous record was, I believe, 37 or 36? 39 days. So I did, I did it in 31 days and 20 hours. Amazing. Hours, sorry. And um, the previous record was 39 days and nine hours. Oh my goodness. So basically you also, you did kayaking and cycling and running between these. Your wife was a huge support, which is, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, and uh, climbed over basically 126,143 meters, which is the equivalent of 78 miles of climbing. Um, yes. I, I can't even imagine the feat. So can you tell us a little bit about number one, why <laughs> you would want to do that? Because it just, you know, for most of us, it's like, <laughs> Just climbing one mountain, you know, we have 14,000 feet, you know, mountains here. I see one out my window, but, and that's a, that's an all day adventure. You did this. I, I just can't imagine. So can you tell us, explain maybe why you chose to do that or how you got into it? <laughs> yeah, so I've always wanted to climb all the Monroes in Scotland. So obviously we mentioned there's 282 of them. Um, and most people, you know, most Monroe baggers, that's what they're called, hill climbers in Scotland that climb Monroes called Monroe baggers. Most people will try and climb the mall in a lifetime. And I found out since I've done it, the average time it takes someone to complete all the Monroes is about 23 years. Um, so that's kind of giving you a rough background of how people normally do the Monroes. And then also you get like the crazy people like myself that like to go try and do them in as quick as time as possible. So, you know, you can go quite far back in the history and look at, you know, people doing complete Monroe rounds and kind of setting out, see how fast they can do them. And they've been done in different styles. So, for example, uh, Hugh Simmons ran all the windows and ran in between them. Uh, I think that was in the 80s. Uh, and then carried on running the hills in England and Wales, which is incredible. Um, but the last couple of fast Monroe rounds have been in a self-propelled style. So it's kind of been either running and then cycling in between the Monroes because you're covering massive difference. Obviously, Scotland's tiny compared to the USA, but, you know, it's still fairly big to get around and they're all spread out. So using the bike to, go to get to the different mountain ranges and then some obviously are on an island so you have to kayak. So that's what appealed to me. So kind of, I've always wanted to climb all the Monroes in Scotland. Um, I'm fairly, 
trust you, like Scotland's got quite a lot of boggy hills, uh, and the west coast of Scotland's more rugged, more alpine, more rocky, so maybe a bit more like your Rockies. And I kind of favour them type of roads. I do them over and over again, and not really do like the rounded plateau kind of summits over in the eastern side of Scotland. So, um, yeah, so last year I basically decided I was going to go and do a manure round. It's been on my mind for like two or three years. And like last year, I thought, okay, I'm going to take a year out of racing because I do a lot of racing and focus on doing a self-propelled manure round. And then kind of looking at the previous time, the previous time being Stephen Pikes, which was the record at the time was 39 days and nine hours. Um, which is an incredible record to try and beat. Uh, so yeah, as you kind of put a schedule together in the autumn, looking at the maps, kind of trying to plan a route. And I didn't plan, end up having a 33 day schedule, but I didn't plan a 33 day schedule. I basically looked at what I could do on any given day in training. And then they just kind of consistently built that up. So for example, on day three, I did 65K with about, five and a half thousand meters of ascent. And I did that in training for the Monroe Round. And I know I can go and do these kind of days as an individual training day. The big question was, could I do these days consecutively for 30 plus days? And that's how my schedule came about. I looked at what I could physically do in one day in training, and then I just put them back to back, back to back. And that's how it came out, 33 days. So yeah, it was a tall, tall task. And I did it, say at the start, it was a very ambitious schedule. Right. And then there was some very incredible weather challenges, I'm sure, because Scotland is north and cold and wet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I actually got very lucky with weather. Like, I'm not going to lie, I had near perfect conditions. So wow. in Scotland in the summer, you're never going to get 30 plus days of blue sky, sunshine. You're always going to get a fair bit of wind and rain. Um, and there's only like maybe three or four days that really kind of stick in my mind that are like, yeah, they were brutal weather-wise. So it's like typical Scottish summers. It was like horizontal rains. The rain was coming horizontal and hitting you on the side of the face. And gale force winds that were buffeting about the hill. Um, so there was only like two or three days of that. And there was quite a few days where it was just grey and a good Scottish word, Greek, which is just like grey and damp and everything just gets damp. But it's not overly cold. It's just Greek. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I had some nice weather as well, so I can't really complain. Yeah, I lived in Washington State, which is in the Northwest, which is 10 months of rain, constant. Just everything's wet, always. So like, I, I get it. Um, so, I mean, so you did this incredible feat, but not everybody can do that. So how do you go from a young man in Scotland? I mean, it sounds like you were also in the Marines. I'm a vet as well, so I yeah. totally appreciate that. And you had spent some time in the Middle East, as have I. So I, I, I get that part of that. Um, but I was in the Air Force and a doctor. It's a little yeah. different. <laughs> um, but as far as, you know, the mentality and the training, how did you go from, you know, I guess a young man, and then you went to the Marines young and then decided to go into yeah. ultramarathon. It sounds, it's probably comparable as far as mental toughness, but how do you deal with all that? Like on your tough days and just kind of tell us what's, what goes on the inside of your mind when all this yeah, is so kind of yeah I'd obviously you know I, for this kind of challenge that I've just done I'd probably have been training all my life you know I bit of background I grew up in Isle of Skye which is like the west coast of Scotland and I played uh, I've always been fairly sporty so I played Shinty which is a Scottish game it's also played in California I've actually been to America to play Shinty before in oh. San Francisco so Northern California have a Shinty team so, sorry about that side story but anyway I used to play Shinty <laughs> uh, 
uh, to quite a high level. I played for Scotland under 17 squads and development, and they used to play the Irish. That's the international game you could have. So I did that till I was 17, and then I joined the Marines at 17, got sold the dream of travel the world. Like I was always into kind of outdoor <laughs> adventure kind of stuff, not realizing when they say travel the world, it's not your scenic places you're going to. So um, The desert? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I did that for three and a half years, and then kind of went into sports coaching and development. I went to uni and studied sports coaching and development. When I was kind of at that age of 17, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to join the Marines or go to university. So I went to the Marines and then went to university afterwards. Um, and it was at university, just after I finished university, that I got into long distance running. So back in 2009, uh, basically usual university lifestyle. You drink too much, you party too hard, you eat loads of takeaways. And don't really look after. So I was actually getting fit to play shinny bit available with high standards. That was my sporting background. Mm. And it was a friend who said, Oh, why don't you come and do this race on Island Juro, which is two Scottish islands? It's about 150 miles long over five days. So it was like MDS style racing. Um, and it just appealed to me. It's like that's why I joined the music. These types of adventures of just traveling on foot or using your self propelled momentum to cover distance and see wildlife. So I did that and just really enjoyed that. And that's how I got into um, ultra running. Um, so obviously your question was, how do I deal with the very low points? Um, yeah. So obviously all these experiences I've had helps me when I'm low. So I can recall when like, for example, I've been at a low point in a race before I've, I've ran for 44 hours previously. So I know I can go for 44, 48 hours without having to sleep. So I draw on these experiences. And again, to a certain extent, so like on day 17, I've said in other podcasts that it was my lowest day by far. I was in just a really low pace, but I've never thought of quitting, even though I was saying, what's the point? There's no point in running hills. I'd lost the focus and I was just like questioning why I was doing it. I wasn't enjoying it at the time. Honestly, I wasn't enjoying it. Um, and I was like, I could just go home. I'd be happy to go home, but it wasn't like I was ever going to actually seriously go home because um, it's just basically I describe it as like you have a bad day at your job you go home you, you'll whinge to your wife or your partner or a friend the next day you get up and you go back to work and that's what I was doing at that time my job was I get up I run my nose no no matter the weather no matter how I was feeling that's my job I got up at 5 a.m start running by six and that's kind of like just routine helped me get through the lower points and then just you know trying to focus on so kind of using sports psychology. So kind of just focusing on the next Monroe, goal setting, positive self-talk, all these kind of tricks of the trade from like sports psychology can help motivate you through as well. And another thing that really motivated me is uh, I'm quite stubborn and I like proving people wrong. So there was a few people that said like, that's a very ambitious schedule. I don't know if it's possible. And I was like, well, I'm going to do my best to show you it is possible. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. I went to medical school with three little kids and I had a few people tell me I couldn't do it. I was like, oh yeah, watch. <laughs> and so, and uh, now my daughter's about to graduate medical school. So it's, it's all worked out well. Yeah. So, um, so as far as the, when you say sports psychology, that um, that's a deep field. What parts or tricks did you use yourself? So you said you're speaking and focusing on the future, but I mean, there will be points like when someone is just going through just physically exhausted. I mean, I did it. I've done 40 hour calls at the hospital, but I was exhausted. I can't imagine moving my body <laughs> to different places. Like I know how I had to, cause I like, I have patients to take care of, but 
how do you, what is, what are you speaking to your mind just to kind of help people understand the, the self-talk that you're doing or whatever sports psychology uh, particular uh, things that you're doing? It's hard to say. So, you know, you're kind of going through highs and lows. And so, you know, like, cause I really cared passionately about wanting to do all the Monroe's, I think it was something I invested a lot of time in it. It's something I really wanted to achieve. Mm. I had high motivation going into it. So I didn't have to motivate myself um, on that. And I knew, like, after, like, three or four days, I was already up in the previous record because that's where my schedule was. And on day 17, when I had my low point, I was two days up in the schedule. So I could, in theory, have had two days rest. Um, but I was kind of wanting to see how far I could push myself, and that's kind of my nature. So I want to see how far I can go through the low points and come out the other side. And obviously, I've been running for over 10 years now. You can draw on other experiences, so other experiences where you kind of felt like really cold or wet and you managed to get through, you know you're going to come out the other end, you know your state of mind is going to change. And then also, you know, some of the self-positive self-talks are just like, come on, let's just focus on the next hill and just telling yourself to focus on the next Monroe or the next hill. Because on day 17, all I could see was like another 14 days of suffering. Uh, so I had like over another 14 days to go. So. And you kind of going into the challenge. So this is kind of like visualization as well of um, sports psychology. I, I kind of visualized, I knew round about the middle of the challenge was going to be the toughest point because so far from the start, so far to the finish. I knew mentally that's going to be the toughest. It's going to be like Groundhog Day. You're doing 12, 14 hour days in the mountains. Mm. There's no end in sight. And I had lost focus off just focusing on a day at a time and more and more at a time. So I was just trying to bring that focus back down because I knew I was expecting to go through that low point and feeling like there was so far to go. I knew when I'd hit it, I was like, yeah, I'm, I was expecting this. I was expecting the low points. Let's just work through it. Let's just keep going. And again, routine helps. So obviously my routine for the last 14 days was get up, keep going no matter how I felt, just focus on getting to the next one and just keep moving forward at whatever speed I could manage um, on that. So yeah, it's a combination of factors. You know, it wasn't one specific word or, you know, technique. It's strong on all, the, all of them. And also, you know, the one I mentioned previously about kind of using negative feedback that I got from, it wasn't negative, it was well-meaning, but I just used it as motivation to push myself on and keep going as well as that kind of external motivation, just trying to prove some people wrong uh, on that. So there's loads of different techniques kind of rolled into one. So it's hard to say, but it's just, main one is experience, getting out there and, experiencing and then as you get more experience you know how to push a bit harder and a bit further awesome so you kind of know how to self-propel even in those worst conditions mentally because you've been there before just like training in the military they prepare you for you just do what you do because it's it's second nature at that point so excellent um so now when you're doing all of this obviously there's a, a large physical demand and you have to fuel yourself so can you tell us a little bit about your diet and you know, I know you definitely are, are plant strong. Can you share with us how you discovered uh, more of a plant-based diet and what in, compelled you to move in that direction? Cool. So obviously, I'm, my other job is a sports coach. So I coach other athletes. So I always keep an eye, well, not keep an eye, I always research, read the latest studies. And, you know, the latest studies coming out a couple of years ago was, you know, going more towards plant-based diets. It wasn't a definite, yes, this is going to give you an extra two or 5% performance gains, but you're looking at what the other elite athletes were doing, 
not just from trail running and ultra running background, but from other endurance sports, obviously like tennis, five sets, five, six hours games, you know, Novak Djokovic, um, these kind of people. Then you're looking at some of the um, elite Kenyan marathon runners. I've been to Kenya, I've looked at, at Eden and I've looked at the diet. They're not wholly plant-based, but the majority of the diet is veg and ugali, which is a, a grain. Now, and the reason they don't eat a lot of meat is because they're poor, so they can't afford meat. Uh, right. uh, so, but that's by default. But they're world-renowned as good marathon runners. And then you're looking at a lot of the other elite level sports, even in ultra running and tennis and even football. And you're kind of looking at what their feedback is. And I'm always one to experiment on myself. So it was probably about two years ago. I was like, okay, well, I'll try going plant-based at the start of January, go veganuary, what it was called. Um, I don't like using the term vegan because obviously I wear leather shoes and kind of stuff like that more nutritional uh, I got into it for nutritional benefits for performance gains but I also agree with it environmentally as well like I agree that we should as a population as worldwide should reduce our meat consumption and um, I think it's not realistic for everyone to go plant-based but I think if we reduce our meat consumption then it'll make a big difference environmentally and uh, sorry for a sidebar on that um, so yeah I basically tried it for January and what I found was I wasn't all of a sudden a lot faster. What I found was I was recovering better at between sessions. So obviously I felt better going into the following sessions. Um, and I just really enjoyed the food. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna like mm-hmm. it, I like my food. And I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I kind of just end up sticking to it. Not that I had to force myself to stick to it, I actually enjoyed it. And I didn't really miss anything of what I used to have. The only thing I'd probably miss, and I had it during the round just cause it's, it adds more calories. It's like Parmesan cheese on top of pasta and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and people say, oh, when you have plant-based cheese, and it's like, well, that's terrible for you. So it defeats the purpose of me <laughs> going plant-based if I'm just swapping out cheese for basically coconut saturated fat. You know, mm. it doesn't make any sense on that as an athlete. So, you know, if I want to have cheese without my pasta, I will. Right. I don't all the time. I'm very rarely at home. But if I'm on a big adventure like that, then I probably would because you get a psychological boost from eating foods that you like and also it's a bit more protein, a bit more calories. It's not bulky uh, on that. So, yeah, that's kind of my journey into plant-based. And, again, um, I don't let restrict my diet either. It's another thing I kind of made a conscious effort to do. So, for example, if I'm driving about Scotland, I go to a petrol station and they're not, they haven't got like a plant-based sandwich. I'm not going to end up just eating two bags of crisps for my lunch because I can't eat a, like a vegetarian sandwich or that. I just defeat the purpose of having a healthy, balanced diet, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure. Absolutely. And then I've been on a plant-based diet for nine years and yeah. have had tremendous results with patients um, and athletes. I have had some athletes that I've worked with as well. And it's a phenomenal way of eating. All three kids are plant-based. My husband lost 60 pounds. And um, I'm also a runner, not to that degree, but I do enjoy running. Um, and it has really helped because I'll be 50 in a few weeks. And so it's not like, you know, the world changes as you get a little older. Yeah. So it's a phenomenal thing to be able to keep going and feel your body that way. So um, that is really cool. So can you tell us a little bit about like, what were you eating each day? And I mean, that, that's a lot of calories to consume. So what were you fueling your body with? Each sure. day? So my typical breakfast was 
four slices of wholemeal toast with uh, almond butter, blueberry jam, and chia seeds, and two cups of tea and a can of Red Bull. And that was fine. That was my normal breakfast. The can of Red Bull was just getting going in the morning with the extra caffeine. Um, and then when I was out moving in the mountains, I was trying to get 90 grams of carbohydrate an hour. Like, there's a recent study showing that in mountain marathons and long distance, your body can tolerate up to 120 grams of carbohydrate every hour. Oh, wow. I tried that in training and I tried it at the start and I just found I was leaving myself nauseous with too much carbohydrates. Your gut is trainable, uh, as you probably well know. Uh, I found the perfect balance is around about 90 grams of carbohydrate. It wasn't an exact science. It wasn't like measuring out every hour. I just kind of knew roughly I was round about that ballpark. It might be slightly low one hour, slightly over the next hour. But yeah, aiming for around about 90 grams of carbohydrate every hour when I was moving. And I was getting that in a mixture of active root, which is basically a carbohydrate sports drink with ginger root extract. It's basically raw cane sugar, citric acid, and ginger root extract, which I can drink gallons of and not get any GI distress from, uh, which is great. Um, and then on top of that, I'd be in uh, cliff bars, crepe bars, and mainly shop blocks. They were the main food. And then occasionally towards the end of the day, uh, I might have, if I was near the van, I'd have a can of Red Bull, or if not, I'd have like a SI Science and Sports caffeine gel, just for like the last big climb of the day. Uh, on that and then if you know if it was a day where I was kind of in between my nose and I was getting back to the van for lunch or that um, my lunch would normally be like uh, two plant-based sausage rolls and a cup of tea or something like that so two rolls and a cup of tea and then my evening meals were mainly pan, uh, plant-based so it's like pasta with veg and tofu or um, lentil bolognese uh, beyond meat burgers, I must admit, I do like a beyond meat burger. <laughs> Stacks <laughs> of protein. And then also, if I was near a pizzeria, I, I do like my pizzas as well, so I'd be having pizzas as well. So yeah, that's kind of like my day's nutrition. Um, yeah. So my goodness. So what were your wife's days like? So, I mean, that's because that's... My, we've had a friend who tried to self-support. I don't know if you've heard of the Leadville 100 here, yeah. but um, which is just a couple hours from where I live. And they canceled it because of COVID and there was also fires um, yeah. near here, but uh, so they wanted to do self-supporting and um, one of our friends who lost 120 pounds on the plant-based diet got into ultra marathoning and uh, he's like, can you guys, you know, be my, one be my pacer and someone, you know, Lori be the medical support. And I'm like, sure, but I'm bringing, <laughs> bringing IVs and all, who knows what else we're going to need up there. And um, I tend to over, you know, get excited and, think of yeah. things so there was my husband was going to run the first 50 with him and um the smoke was so bad they ended up ending around 28 miles it was just yeah. it was the particulates were horrible yeah. um but what was interesting was all the different foods that they were consuming but um it, it was is rather and you know they're pulling out sodas that they'd never drink <laughs> they're doing yeah. shot locks but um the what a wonderful excuse to eat all these foods that you wouldn't normally eat but it was, what was interesting is the recovery period. They, you had, I read an article about you and you'd use the, um, the squeezers. Yeah, yeah. The recovery boots. And those are such a fascinating thing. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Why you would do that? Cause it reminds me in the hospital when someone's in the hospital, they have those, they've had them for years, yeah. 20 plus years to keep blood clots, um, from yeah. are laid up, but they, you guys use them for recovery. What happens when you do that? So can you just explain a little bit about that? Um, cool. So basically, yeah, it's so basically my end of day routine would be get back to the van, have a recovery drink, which is an science and sports Rego, 
and then get into what you describe as recovery pumps. It's two big compression bags for the legs. And basically it just compresses the legs simultaneously working at your ankles all the way up. And it's just pushing the fluid back to your central body to sort of processes. And also helps get rid of any inflammation. So obviously I was dealing with uh, tibia tendinopathy in my right leg at the start and then left tibia tendinopathy. So my ankles were getting swollen. So that really helped getting the recovery pump on, getting them elevated a bit, just helps flush the swelling out. Um, so it made a big difference. I was sitting them for about 45 minutes to an hour. And because you can do other stuff while you're sitting them, it's not like you're foam rolling or stretching where you can't eat or relax. It was a good way of recovery because mm. while I sat in there, I could drink a cup of tea, have some biscuits or some crisps while my dinner was cooking. Um, so yeah, that was just basically part of the recovery process. And I found it made a difference just kind of flushing the legs out. You know, it's maybe just like at the end of the day, you go for a cool down and you just like spin the legs on a spin bike or something. It just helps uh, flush the legs out. Um, gotcha. Absolutely. And then um, what was your wife's days? Did she share with you some of her own adventures? Because that, that's a lot of work traveling and you're following people where they are and meeting them and pulling everything out, making sure they're okay at their stops and keep going. It's, 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 it's a lot crewing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like I openly say, like, I would still be on Mull, which is the first Monroe, if it wasn't for my wife and my sport crew. Um, <laughs> my wife Rachel did an amazing job. Um, and like, it was completely a team effort. Like, you know, she was working just as hard as I was to keep me going. Like, she was pretty much doing everything for me. So, you know, for example, I would come back to the van and I'd just dump my running vest and she would empty all the rubbish out, empty the water bottles, get ready for the next day. You know, that's a massive task. Then she was obviously making dinner, making breakfast, doing the washing up, doing my washing, you know, even taking my socks off some days when I was nagging. You know, it's that kind of thing, you know, she was doing so much and then also she was having to drive the van to different places clean the van, uh, fuel the van. <laughs> uh, yeah, so she had a fair bit of adventures as well. Um, so yeah, it was a complete team effort. And even the people that kind of came and like helped with some of the kayak sections and dropped some home baking off or some cooked meals, you know, it was a great team effort. I'm really thankful and I'm well aware that if it wasn't for the team behind me, I wouldn't have been successful. Um, yeah, like, for example, there's some days like she had an adventure, like I finished, the, I got to the finish point before she managed to get to me because it was such a long drive and it was a Saturday up a single fat road so she was completely stressed. I was mm. fairly stressed because I thought she had been in a car accident or something or the van had broken down so I'd say for about 20 minutes, half an hour, like no one about and I'd just been oh, in the wow. hills for like eight hours, completely destroyed. But yeah, um, wow. good stories. Yeah, those are, those are, there's so many interesting stories, I'm sure there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, now you also obviously are an amazing athlete, but you also help coach others. Can you talk yeah. to us a little bit about your coaching and how you actually became into that and how can people, you know, what can they expect if they, when they work with you? Cool. So um, I've, always, I've always had a sporty background and like originally, uh, even before I went down uh, sports coaching development at uni, when I was like um, under 17, so I was playing shinty. I was helping out at the youth levels at shinty back at home. So I was kind of into coaching even at an early age. And then also when I kind of left the Marines and went to university, I ended up doing a bit of shinty coaching and then also did more team coaching. So basically <laughs> I had a soccer well, football or soccer qualifications as a coach. I was a kayak coach. Um, 
I coached Shinty. Uh, so I had a whole big background and then left university and went down like a personal training kind of side of stuff. Uh, so in a commercial gym, which I hated because it was like, I want to get big or I want to lose weight. And you'd ask them, well, what exercises do you enjoy? Do you enjoy the gym? And they're like, no, I hate the gym. And you're like, well, why are you coming here? You're not going to stick at it. I'm like, find us what you like doing. Go for a run, go cycling, go play London. And I'm sitting there in a gym that I don't even like. So that's how I ended up setting up my own business uh, as a specific running coach or endurance-based athlete coaching. That's kind of what I specialize in. Um, So kind of coaching philosophy then, I'd probably just say, um, actually everyone is an individual. Like you'll read online loads of different ways of coaching and training and stuff. And training is not an exact science. Obviously, there's still a lot we don't know about how the body adapts to different stresses. Mm-hmm. And again, I think the reason we don't know exactly is because everyone's different, so everyone adapts differently to stresses. So it's finding out what best training approach works for that individual and in their life and obviously time constraints. So yeah, it's kind of, yeah, based on my coach philosophy, everyone's an individual, treat them as an individual and try and find what works best for them. Cool. So there's no and- one and you work with beginning athletes through the elite level. Coach. Yeah, yeah. So I work with people wanting to, you know, get into running. Uh, so people want to run the first five, ten, half marathon, marathon, to people finishing on podiums at uh, ultra marathons and stuff like that. So yeah, it's a big wide range, which is enjoyable because you're just kind of working through different coaching. Now everyone's different, so it keeps it nice and various. I really enjoy my job, and I do find it really rewarding. You know when you work with an athlete for maybe three or four years to help them achieve a big massive goal and they achieve it, it's, it's really rewarding, uh, that kind of side of stuff as well. So you, yeah, you get quite attached to them. Cool. And then, so is there any stories that you like to work with or maybe some of the tough cases that you help people break through or anything like that in that sense of, because working with others, it's kind of like working with patients, right? Is you're reaching a, a health goal, changing their lifestyle. It's, it's a, a lot of coaching. So how, what is what are some of your more um, intr- memorable clients? Uh, most of them are quite memorable. You know, the one that stands out to me, one I'm kind of fairly proud of, because a few years ago when I was based in Edinburgh, I used to do some one-to-one coaching as well as so like strength and conditioning. And uh, I had like a six-year-old lady, a sixty-year-old lady, come to me saying she wanted to run the West Highland Way race. Um, and the doctor she had been to said she would never can run. Her knees were like, I can't remember what it was. She had problems with her knees uh, and stuff. And she'd seen doctors said, you're not going to be able to run. And I was like, okay, well, but what we'll do is we'll start from scratch, give it a three-year program. So three years out, we'll work towards three years. So West Island is like a 95-mile race. 95 uh, miles? Yeah. Wow. So basically, that was a three-year project. Um, and like... She bought into like being patient and just kind of doing a lot of strength and conditioning and rehab and building it up. And then she went on to be successful uh, and run it, but not only run it once, but she ran it for like three years straight. So yeah, that's kind of got to be up there as one of the best ones. And then also, you know, even just getting people, inspiring them to take up running, you know, just someone that gets in touch says, look, you've inspired me to get up running. And, you know, you know, everyone's kind of got their different goals, you know, if it's helping someone to achieve their first marathon, it's a great feeling. You know, someone's cares so passionately about running their first marathon, you help them achieve that to, you know, helping an athlete finish on a podium. You know, they're both really rewarding uh, in different ways. Um, yeah, so I, I enjoy, like, helping the athletes achieve their goals. And I kind of, 
I feel bad when they don't because I kind of not take it personally, but I feel like I question myself, is there anything I could have done better as a coach? Mm. And so I'm always kind of self-evaluating myself to see, you know, if I can do better or if I made a mistake somewhere or that. So I'll put my hands up. I don't know everything as a coach. I'm still learning um, right. on that. So yeah, it's kind of a two-way communication, but yeah, it's great when they are successful. And so you would do um, through the internet or virtual training along with in-person training on non-COVID times, I'm su- supposed. Uh, so basically it's all online now because I've moved up north. So basically mm. I use the online training peaks platform uh, and then I catch up with them once a week with a phone call. And um, I think that's the best way to work is because basically a coach after should have a relationship. So it's not a matter of me sending out a four or six week or 12 week training block every time mm. any feedback and just communicate in emails. So it's very hard to establish a personal relationship just through emails. I think, right. you know, if you're going to help an athlete, it's more of a relationship as well. So you need to have communication. If you don't have communication, then, you know, it's hard to strike that relationship. It's hard for the, hard for you as a coach to get them to buy into what you're trying to get them to do. You know, right. prime example, and a lot of people do it, is they run their easy runs too hard. So basically, you know, someone new into running wants to go run hard every day and cause they're short of time. They may be only train one hour a day. They think, well, I can only do an hour a day. Let's make it a hard hour. Mm. You're trying to get them to understand actually that you're working against yourself. You need to do zone one or zone two training. And, you know, if you don't speak to them and haven't got a relationship, it's very hard for you to try and get them, get you, get them to buy into your way of coaching uh, mm. on that. So, yeah. Wow. So, yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense because, you know, emails are just words and people can attach me to them anybody you could read one sentence and five different people five different meanings a hundred percent absolutely so as far as your wife does she is she i'm assuming also a runner and do you guys train together yeah she's a really good runner she's uh, represented uh uk at the trail world champions a few years ago so she's a really good runner so yeah she's kind of sacrificed her training this year for me because she spent a month in the van basically looking after me. Uh, she did get a bit of exercise and dropping bikes off so I could follow a more linear route. Um, but yeah, so we do a bit of running together, but she's a nurse, so um, she works during the day and I do most of my training during the day. But at the weekends, what we'll do is maybe go for a run together sometimes or in the evening, I might do my second session with her, so I'll train in the morning and then go and run with her in the evening or stuff like that. So yeah, we do a fair bit of training together. Awesome. And do you have any children? Uh, no children. No children. Well, it's good to have a nurse as your crew support too. <laughs> the medical component of that, that's been asked. That's fantastic. Excellent. Um, now, has she followed along with you and moved more towards a plant-based diet as well? Yeah, she, you know, she's moved more towards a plant-based diet. I did most of the cooking in the house, so she didn't really get a choice. <laughs> uh, but she enjoys it as well. It's not like uh, she's like missing anything. Um, you know, and if she will have the occasional checking on that if she's like at work and out for a lunch work or stuff like that so again sure. she's not 100 percent strict to it but i'd say 90 percent of her diet is plant-based and i'd suppose in 95 to 99 percent of my diet is plant-based awesome. okay. do you do you work with your um clients also with nutrition do you speak to them about foods that are going to be in you know helping performance and recovery yeah, so I, I, I kind of chat for nutrition. I don't push plant-based onto them because it's a personal choice. And again, you know, you don't have to be plant-based to go and run really well at races. You know, 
it's not like I'm plant-based because that's why I achieved running all of my nose. That wouldn't, you know, I would have done it if I was eating chicken as well and beef, you know. It's not, you know, from a performance point of view, there's still no hard scientific evidence to say having a plant-based diet is going to give you a Q or a 5% performance mm-hmm. increase. Um, but I do advise athletes to obviously have a balanced, varied diet. And, you know, if they're getting protein from meats, make sure it's lean protein. And again, don't overdo red meat or fatty meats and that kind of stuff. And again, same if they're vegetarian or plant-based, you know, kind of trying to avoid them on processed stuff or so trying to avoid or limit vegan cheese or, you know, your ready meals that are heavily processed. So basically my nutritional philosophy is trying to eat as much whole food as possible. So less processed, the better. So do your shopping in the fresh fruit aisle, fresh veg aisle and like the fresh meat or dairy counter rather than going into the dry good stuff and that, to a certain extent. Right. Absolutely. So yeah, the processed food is, I don't know if it's, it's the same. I mean, so you said you've been to the U S and have you been through our grocery stores compared to Scotland? I'm always curious what it's like in different countries when you go shopping. I mean, I've been all to different places, but not necessarily grocery shopping. So, I mean, is there any particulars that you find that are, it's just, it's better to be outside of the United States? Uh, I find like when I, when I went to the United States, I went with the Shinty team to play Shinty. So we were based at Stanford University. Mm. And I find America's were two extremes. You're either really healthy and on the fitness streak, uh, or you're really kind of didn't really care and you're on the obese streak. Like I find your portion sizes to be ridiculous when we eat it out. They're like <laughs> portion sizes. And one of the things I do remember, um, it's quite a funny story. Like we all arrived late at night after a long haul. We went out for a meal. We're all like, yeah. We'll have burgers and chips, and they came with burgers and crisps. And we're like, what if we want to get chips with this? It's obviously a difference in dialogue. But um, generally, my my experience from um, time in California, it really sticks out is actually your fresh fruit was amazing compared to back mm. in the UK. And I find that in Europe as well. I find our fruit and veg is rubbish that we get, get here. I think we just get the rubbish lot. So when I go to Europe or in America, especially, uh, where we were in the like the whole foods, uh, but I found like your pineapples and just all your whole fruit was just really tasty compared to what the rubbish we get in the UK. And then same in when I travel to the Alps, like France and Italy, I find the fruit and veg out there is like ten times better. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I don't recommend coming to the UK for fruit and veg, but yeah, um, yeah. I also hear a lot of bad stories about your uh, meat. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's. It's a good thing to be eating plant-based in the United States. There's many, many reasons. It's it's a it's an interesting time for us. Talking about uh, lowering our meat quality standards, which doesn't affect me because I don't eat meat anymore. But it's kind of that time. I find that's how we're hearing a lot more about the U.S. Uh, meat standards and yeah, chlorinated chicken. It's, um, it's, it's, it's really disturbing. And, you know, my daughter is uh, in Texas going to medical school. She's our fourth year. She'll graduate in May. And she's telling me the COVID cases of the meat packing plants, they've kept them open. And there's just the swell of COVID cases is just overwhelming hospitals. And I'm just thinking to myself, these are not essential. These are not essential workers. Let them go and be well. And you know, I'm just sitting here going, we're so messed up in our philosophy. Um, it's just, it is a really, it's a, it's an interesting time right now. Let's just say, um, I'll just leave it at that. Um, so I, I try to, I, I try, try 
not to walk the political line, but you know, mm. right now it's like, ah, <laughs> um, yeah. where is the the lack of, um, I don't know, just just being uh, the, the 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 amount of thinking that is lacking, I guess. But anyway, um, so your website is getactiverunning.com. Yep. And they can reach out to you there if someone yeah. wants to. And, and you work with international clients as well. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And so, um, you know, obviously a lot of my listeners are in the U.S. So, yeah. um, and plant-based. And so they will totally, and a lot of runners, yeah. <laughs> it seems to be my little crew. Um, yeah. And it's, it's exciting to see someone excel like you. Um, and it's just, it's always so fascinating to me. That's why I started the podcast four years ago yeah. was I was seeing these people literally go from 400 pounds, eating a plant-based diet, running ultra marathons like Josh Lajani and some other friends of mine. Yeah. I was like, what was in your mind that allowed you to do that? But I can't get someone just to walk, you know, around the block every day. <laughs> so that psychology is so very important. And is that one of the things that you find the most interesting or challenging when working with people is like what's going on between the ears? <laughs> yeah, it can be the most challenging, you know. Um, yeah, you get different personalities. Um, but yeah, like for yourself, it must be really hard trying to change people's habits. And again, as a coach, it's kind of something you've got to try and, you know, you, get, you have to try and get alongside them, show a bit of empathy and then trying to, you know, show them there's a different way that might be slightly better and trying to encourage them on that path. And it's very hard. Like, you know, some people are very stuck in their ways and, you know, you get some athletes that will join me and you, you're questioning why they're joining because they're like, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and this is what I do. And you're like, well, what are you paying me for then? If you've already decided this is what you want to do in training and this is how you're going to approach it. And you're like, okay, well, we'll, we'll try it this way or, you know, I understand this could be good, but you tried this, you've done this. You know, it's kind of, yeah, it's, you need to build a relationship up. But for you, trying to change people's eating habits, which is probably harder. Oh, it must um, be absolutely <laughs> bang your head against the wall some days. Well, it's funny. Um, I, I'm family medicine, so I was in traditional medicine. You know, I went to the Air Force, did my thing, doctoring thing for four years. And I got to go to some really cool places, except for the Middle East. That was my least favorite. But I got to go to South America and do humanitarian trips. I've been to Africa. And I mean, I'm just looking and it's just a phenomenal experience. But when I got into plant-based medicine and lifestyle medicine nine years ago, um, I, I didn't realize the hurdles. And I'd always tried to encourage people because I was always active in any way because you're in the military, right? You, you're going to be active whether you want to or not. And I've enjoyed that. But um, what was interesting was I really started focusing on very specific. And um, over the years, what I've learned is that, honestly, you just, like you said, meeting people where they're at, it's a very smart way to do that. But then also making the behavior so simple and so easy that they cannot fail and then to celebrate and then tying it to routine. I found those three principles work wonders, like yeah. make it small, make it easy and tie it to something you're already doing. So it's not like you're building in a new routine. And so like when I, I started, I've been runner for 30 plus years yeah. off and on, not always cause you know, you're raising three kids yeah. and being a mom and working. Um, so because I'm going to be 50 and at the end of the month, I was like, I've always wanted to be, and I trained and I've done one marathon. I've done lots of other half marathons. I'd love to be able to run further. Um, I was like, you know, I need a really good base. I need to just start. <laughs> and so about three months ago or two and a half months ago, I said, I'm just going to start running a mile a day. 
And every week I'll add a third of a mile and now I'm up to four miles a day. And I was like, I know injuries and I'm, you know, and I'm just super excited. But by the end of the month, I'll be doing five miles a day, which will be a good base. Um, And that's worked well for my mindset, but I tie it to the routine of walking my dog. I take the dog for a walk. I come back, my shoes are on, I go. Is that kind of where you work with me? I just, the only thing I found that has been consistently working. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, one of the key things, especially with changing people's eating habits is trying to get the ideas. Like if you can stick to it for three weeks, after 21 days, it becomes routine and you don't notice it. So mm-hmm. as you were saying, it's about making small changes at times, not completely ripping up the playbook and saying we're going to do everything totally different. It's about trying to make it okay, we might change one or two things and we'll stick with that for three weeks, focus on that for three weeks until it comes routine and then mm-hmm. you change something else. So again, same with training. If you're trying to change someone's approach to training, you might change one or two things mm-hmm. and then explain to them, okay, focus on that for 21 days. And after 21 days, it comes routine. It should be. Uh, mm. I say, once you're in a routine, it's great. So, you know, if you're getting someone new into training that hasn't trained for a while, it's kind of in and out, sporadic, loses motivation. It's like, okay, we'll keep the session short like you did. And we'll just say, we'll get out five days a week. I don't care how long you run for, what you do, but we're out the door five days a week. And just focus mm-hmm. on that for the next three weeks. And once they're out the door in that routine, they built that routine, they built that time into their daily routine. Then you can start kind of actually shaping it and molding it to more specific training. Mm-hmm. So yeah, very similar to what you do. It's, you know, it's kind of trying to influence one thing at a time until they have that as routine and then go on and try and change something else. Absolutely. It's that one little bit. And then it's almost like you feel compelled to do it. Like I miss it. <laughs> yeah. So that that's actually really good advice. And um, that is really cool. I'm so excited. My husband sent me your article and he's like, you should try to get him on the podcast. And I was like, I know this is very exciting. So I'm so excited that when you, you, you appreciated or agreed to come on and um, can you, you know, before I know we had mentioned your, your um, short on time here, could you mind giving us one bit of advice for someone who maybe is seeing that they want to reach a really big goal like you did and how would you approach it or any other advice that you feel before we leave? Because obviously we're looking to, you know, obviously with COVID restrictions as well, not many races. And I say this to my athletes, just try and find something you want to achieve. And it doesn't have to be a race. So it could be, for example, running a marathon or setting a PB at a marathon. And then giving yourself enough time to train for that. So depending on where you're starting from to where you're going. And set a date and then also tell your friends so you're accountable. So you need to commit to something. So obviously, you know, I could easily say, okay, I'm going to try and beat my marathon PB and keep on saying it for like three or four months, but never set a date and never really tell anyone. Whereas if I set a date and say, okay, I'm going to do it on 25th of December, I'm going to run this distance and do that. And then I start telling my friends, you're accountable. It's like entering a race and telling your friends you're accountable to how you perform on that given day. Um, so yeah, it's find something you kind of want to achieve and passionate about. So there's no point in saying, okay, I won't go and set a marathon PB when you really just don't enjoy running on roads, but you enjoy running up hills. And again, it could be something small like, you know, setting a PB on your usual training run. It doesn't have to be something across the world or linking up massive mountains. It could be just something on your back door that you're like, okay, I want to get faster going up this hill or I want to link these three hills up and do this, see how far I could run in 24 hours or the other craze that's going on. It's like everything. So it's like, climb the equivalent of Everest up and down a hill reps, doing hill reps that you've climbed Everest. You know, mm. so there's loads of different challenges you can set yourself, but 
thing to do is commit to it. So set a date and then tell people about it. That's, I, I think accountability is so important. By the way, when you mentioned climbing Mount Everest, what you did was climbing like 14 Mount Everest, correct? <laughs> yeah, I think someone's worked that out. I didn't really work that out, but yeah. For some reason, people like calculating uh, ascent and Everest, which is a bit weird. It's like, it goes into 14 Everest. It's like, oh. I, it's a lot. <laughs> just, it's just a lot. I mean, because when living here in Colorado, I'm already at a mile high, and then you go and you can see the mountains that are 14,000 feet, and you're looking at Everest, which is twice that. You're just like, that just is so mind-boggling to me. Um, and just the, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's crazy. Um, well, Donnie, thank you so much for everything. And I will put all your contact information, or my son will. He does my editing. <laughs> Um, and uh, I'm super excited for people to reach out to you. So everyone, uh, you know, check out Donnie at um, getactiverunning.com. And he's got some really cool videos and, and it's just some, a really neat thing to, to hear your story. So thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, thank you for having me on. Awesome.